The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Rockheads, stop reading Neapolian.com and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Jeff Maciolik, here to announce show number 210, with guest Scott Ambler, recorded live Thursday, November 30th, 2006. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net. Training developers to work smarter and now offering a whole suite of on-site and remote classes in .NET 2.0 technologies. Online at www.franklins.net. And by Data Dynamics, makers of ActiveReports.net. Simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who can't stop digging the smartest man.com, Carl Franklin. Thank you. Thank you very much. Welcome back. It's Carl and Richard here with more .NET Rocks goodness. Hi, Richard. How are you doing? I'm really good. But, you know, a funny thing's happened to me this week. I guess uh, the MVP Summit is coming up in March. Right. And uh, it's, of course, in Redmond, as it is every year. Yep. But all sorts of MVPs have been emailing me about things to do in Vancouver, because they're going to tie a visit to Vancouver in to a uh, trip to the MVP Summit. Are you going to have them over for barbecue? Well, March is a little rainy for barbecuing, but uh, we'll and there's a lot of MVPs, out. and it's uh, quite a few. So I, it's going to be interesting to try and coordinate all this. And I guess presumably some MVPs are listening to the show. Uh, feel free to give me a buzz, and uh, we'll, we'll work something out in Vancouver. I think I'm going to be running a major tour group through Vancouver in and around the uh, MVP summit. Yeah, Vancouver will be overrun with MVPness. <laughs> so with kudos to Kate Gregory, right? <laughs> you know, I was watching Iron Sh speaking of that, um, I was watching Iron Chef America. It was a rerun, and I think it was from the first or second season. And this woman, Judge, she, the, 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 the food was, the secret ingredient was frozen peas. And that creepy guy who, you know, yells the secret ingredient, it was so funny. He tries to make it interesting. He goes, frozen peas! <laughs> I want to get, like, a video segment of every secret ingredient he's ever announced that way and just put him back to back, you know, in this one long montage. But anyway, but she actually described one of the dishes as, she says, I can, you know, there's so much peeness going on in here, in this dish. Oh, no. So... It keeps going on. <laughs> it does. I love that show. All right. So uh, we got some email to read here. I'll read the first one here from Nicholas Travat. 
And Nicholas uh, is originally from uh, your home planet, Richard. <laughs> My home town of Taranga, New Zealand. Yeah, and the reason I hesitated there is because I looked at it and realized I had no idea how to pronounce that word. <laughs> Taranga? Taranga, yes. Yeah, so and, that's your uh, hometown. Yes, that's North Island, New Zealand. I was born there, uh, uh, and uh, the family farm is still there, dairy farm on Ohuiti Road. And I've been back recently. It's been a couple of years. We're going to have to go record a show from your house. That's what we'll have to do. From one you. of these is not my house. It's my uncle's house. You're but farm. all the same. He, right. he every so often, every time I've been down there, I've been down there a few times. He always says to me in a quiet moment. Uh, so uh, when you come to your senses and come back home, that's ah, your lot over there. Nice. Feel free to build on it. Awesome. Well, anyway, he says, Nicholas says, hey there, Carl. I'm catching up with a bunch of DNR TV episodes. DNRTV.com. Thank you very much. That I have missed over the past few months, 26 through 47, to be precise. And I would dearly love an easier way to map the episode number to the title of the show other than navigating to the show's page. Including the title of the show in the file name, perhaps not overly practical, or a single web page which lists all shows with the show number, date, and title, and guest might be appreciated by other listeners, too. I personally would find it very convenient as I would save some time renaming them all. Just a thought. Also, and bef- you know, before I go on, I would just like to say, yeah, that's a great idea. We did that with uh, .netrocks.com this year when we added a, an archives page that has all of the shows listed on one big page. I think we'll do the same thing for DNR TV. DNRTV.com is due for an overhaul anyway, don't you think, Richard? Yeah, it's been a year and uh, things have grown a bit. I think it's time to... Have it take on some of the DNRness. DNRness, so good, very good. <laughs> All right. So also, I w- he says. Uh, also, I would like to take this opportunity to sincerely thank you and Richards uh, for you and Richards' ongoing commitment to DNR and DNR TV. These quality productions, and he says that in bold, along with the occasional but much needed crazy comic relief of Mondays, has been a huge. And that's that other show that we don't talk about. Yeah has been a huge contributing factor in maintaining my interest and enthusiasm in programming in general, and particularly .NET 2.0. .NET Rocks brings current and emerging technologies, concepts, and practices that I know little or nothing about, oh my god, there is so freaking much, into my view, literally with DNR TV. Uh, perhaps most important to me is that .NET Rocks and DNR TV are often the icebreakers which initiate my path to familiarity. Sometimes a show may arouse my curiosity enough to read a blog or article about a hot new topic and occasionally even to buy a a book or a tool written by one of your guests. But every now and then, a show starts a path of learning which dramatically impacts the way I work. If I hadn't been uh, bombarded with things.net 2.0 on a weekly basis through your podcast, then I might still be using VB6, thank God for VS2005, if I hadn't heard and seen your interviews of Rocky Lotka, then I might not have bought his books and be using and loving CSLA.net in my code today. And if I hadn't seen with my own eyes Mark Miller in action, then I might actually think I'm a decent coder. So far to go. <laughs> uh, watching Mark Miller code is very disturbing. It makes everybody feel inadequate. Yeah. No, truly, he's a freak of nature. <laughs> so... <laughs> Richard, one more, and then we'll get to the guest. All righty. Here we've got one from Brad Bruce, and it starts off with something for Richard. 
And it says water cooling with pool water. And I shrinksterized this link. It's at shrinkster.com slash L9T, Lima 9 Tango. Don't let that cold water in your swimming pool go to waste. No. and uh, I've actually emailed the guy who's done this, but what he's done is he is using his pool water as the reservoir and radiator to cool his PCs. Wow, which is crazy. That's insane, <laughs> but it's awesome. But I've I've actually emailed with him a few times talking about some of the issues he's encountered because I'm trying to do a centralized water cooling system without a pool. Yeah, how's that working, by the way? Not so good, but we're getting there. No, so you would not advocate. At this point, water cooling to people? Oh, uh, sure. I'm I mean, look, if cooling. you're having problems, Richard, what's the average schmo going to be doing? Um, it, it, it's a reality check that your computer's not just an appliance at that point. It needs care and feeding. It needs to top up water regularly. And you have to have some idea what to do when there's a puddle underneath your machine. Yeah. Yeah. But moving on past that in Brad's email, he says, okay, now that's out of the way. Guys, your show rocks. I have about a 30-minute drive to and from work, and your show fills the time nicely. We were a C++6 shop until just recently. We are now moving to .NET 2.0, just in time for 3.0. Ah, oh. The things I've learned in your show have been quite helpful in my job. Well, wait a minute. We should, we should point out that, don't get the wrong idea, we have to keep doing this disclaimer. 3.0 is 2.0 with a few added features. Yeah. It's, Very it's important features. But. Not the same thing. You know, they're, they're adding new things, and they're good things. Yeah. But what you know in 2.0 is still quite useful. Yeah. Still Visual Studio 2005. Right. Okay. Go on. As I'm in the car listening, I don't always understand some of the names or websites you mention. It could just be the accent. Do we have an accent? Um, I, I probably do. I think everybody <laughs> has an accent depending on where you're from, right? Right. It would be nice if there were a names in light section on the website for each show. An approximate playlist would be helpful as well. If I knew where in a show a particular concept was discussed, it would be easier to queue it up and share with my coworkers. Hmm. This is kind of an interesting idea, although it'd be a fairly tough bit of work to try and put all that together. And it occurs to me that a transcript's already handled that to some degree. Well, yeah, the transcript doesn't have a time per se. But, I mean, you can pretty much figure out by the flow of conversation that if you're on the third of six pages, you're in the middle of the show, right? Right, right. So you could probably estimate where you are in the show to to pick a particular section. And some people may not realize this, but we do create transcripts of all of the shows. Right. It's just that they're a few weeks behind. Right. It takes It's taking us now about a month to uh, to get everything done. And we were just talking about this before we started recording. And perhaps we could look into some, you know, uh, do an analysis of the efficiency of that process and try to jack it up a little bit. And we'll work on that. But but basically, Richard, yes, we have all the tr- shows transcribed into PDF format. And also what we've done is we've uh, converted them to HTML, and we've implemented a Google Mini search appliance so that you can just go to the search tab. Um, I think it's the search tab on .netrocks.com, but you can basically enter in some text of anything you want, .NET 2.0, VB, C Sharp, ASP.NET, and, and anything in particular just like you would on Google, and it'll search through the transcripts. Now, the tra- all, we don't have all of the transcripts converted over. There are still some that are missing and are not in in there yet, but we're working on that. So, And it, you can also search on any guest, 
any technology. I mean, it's right. It's, it's a Google search engine, so it's pretty darn smart. Yes, and it yeah. will also link you to the show. Once you find the context in which the conversation is, you can read it, and if you decide you want to listen to it, you can just go link to the show and download it. So, that's good. And uh, one more thing I want to announce is that... Uh, the uh, people down uh, in New York City are still uh, Infusion are still looking for more developers to to come onto their staff. Uh, you get a free apartment in New York City for one year on top of a New York salary, and you can read all about that uh, if you haven't heard about it. You can read about it shrinkster.com slash l nine u. Good guys down there at Infusion. Greg Brill. Greg Brill, and he's already hired like five or six people from from DNR, so that's good, and he's very happy with them. Our listeners, you guys are awesome. <laughs> All right, Richard, let's get to our guest. Scott W. Ambler is the practice leader agile development at IBM Corporation. Scott works in the IBM Methods Group, delivering process materials and travels the world helping clients understand and adopt the software processes which are right for them. Scott is an award-winning author of several books, including books focused on the unified process, agile software development, database development, the unified modeling language, and CMM-based development. Scott is a regular speaker at international IT conferences and is a senior contributing editor with Dr. Dobbs Journal. Prior to working for IBM, Scott led the development of several software processes, including agile modeling, agile data, Enterprise Unified Process, and Agile Unified Process Methodologies. Welcome, Scott. Hi. Wow, that is, I think you're the Agile guy. That I is think quite so. a list of Agile uh, efforts you've done. Thanks. Well, I'm one of the Agile guys, I guess you'd say, but yeah. And Scott, the first thing that comes to mind is Agile isn't really the first uh, adjective that I think of when I think of IBM. But, you know, I'm thinking of old IBM, not new IBM. So yeah. Well, we're called like it is. We're a big company, so you know we do a range of stuff. So you know we, we do things from you know very agile to not so agile, and you know everything in between. When when do you think this uh, change occurred at Big Blue? Um, well, it's probably been going on for a while. Um, you know, so for example, a few years ago we you know, we we purchased Rational Corporation, and you know that brought the the RUP in and a bunch of good tools and stuff like that. Yeah. So. Uh, you know, definitely Rational was uh, getting, you know, getting into the Agile game. So I think that's, um, you know, at least that's where it started. But internally, you know, there's 330,000 employees, so there's a lot of stuff going on. So, you know, th- there's been XP teams uh, internally and good stuff like that. Awesome. 330,000. That is a big company. Impressive. Exactly. You know, we originally found out about you through one of our listeners actually asking about agile database development, which I thought was really fascinating. But I I have a strong suspicion we're going to talk about everything agile here. Uh, But you actually did a book specifically on uh, refactoring databases. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So in that book, (laughs) basically, we talk about how myself and uh, Pramod Sandalish, who works at uh, ThoughtWorks, we uh, we co-authored that book, and we basically describe how to evolve your database schema. So one of the one of the favorite questions I like to ask at conferences is, you know, if I ask you to go back to your work tomorrow, and what I'd like you to do is rename a column in a production database, can you safely do that and roll it into production in less than a day? And it's amazing, very few people can. And I mean, so I started asking, so how long would it take? And 
you know, some people can do it in a month and some people can do it in three months. And mm. some people wouldn't, you know, think it's so risky they wouldn't even try to attempt it. And so my point is that, well, first of all, you know, renaming a column is, a, is an absolutely trivial thing. And trivial things should be trivial. And right, so, yeah. you know, and that's one of the things that we actually talk about in the refactoring book. How do you, you know, how do you make these small changes safely? And the reality is that anybody can do these sorts of things uh, if you know how to do it. So, you know, and we're starting to see some tooling for that. And, you know, worst case, you can hand jam it. So um, it is possible to evolve the database. And I think what happens is, so once you realize that it's possible to easily um, evolve a database schema, then suddenly you realize that it's possible for data professionals to work as effective team members on agile teams. Yeah, and and you come to an interesting point here, which is really if you're going to be an effective member on an agile team, you've got to be able to refactor your work. Exactly. Yeah, everything has to be has to has to evolve. So I think a, a lot of companies sort of run into trouble when they've got a you know the developers they're trying to be agile, and then they've got their uh, other people in IT are not so agile. You know, so for example, if the data people want to do the you know the logical and physical modeling at the beginning of the project and sort of set the database scheme in place right away, um, that's not Agile, and that doesn't work very well in practice, um, let alone for an Agile team. And there's no absolutely no reason for that, and there's a lot of reasons for why you don't want to do that. So, I, I, But I think what happens is the, the data community for many years has been told, you know, thou shalt work in a serial manner because that's the only way you can work. And it's simply not true. It's a, I mean, it's the way the tools have been for a long time. And certainly, I think the database guys have fall more heavily on the IT side of things where we're a lot more cautious and not willing to change things quickly, right? That's the IT credo. Change is good. You go first. Yeah, exactly. And I, th- I think what's happened is they, in, the, in the data community, they, they pretty much convinced themselves that you need to think everything through up front and that you couldn't possibly change things because it's very dangerous. Yet, in the, the Refactoring Databases book, we show how to do this in an incredibly safe manner. We, you know, even though we, we talk about the simple situation of, you know, one database and one application, but we quickly go away from that because that's not real for a lot of people. Sure. We then go to, a, a, you know, an environment where there's 100 applications accessing a database, and they're written in different languages, and they're on different schedules, and um, you might not even know they exist, and stuff like that, like, you know, real-world examples. And then we show, okay, so assuming that sort of an environment, how would you safely evolve a database? And we show exactly how to do it and provide full source code for doing it. So um, we don't want to be in a position where, um, you know, people can come to us and say, well, this is, this is wonderful theory, but it's not going to work for me. And, you know, the reality is if you can type source code, you can do this stuff. Uh, Scott, you know what I like about your book is how you break down database refactoring into the different types of refactorings. And I wondered if you could just touch on that a little bit, what these types are and, you know, what uh, kinds of refactorings go into these types. Oh, okay. Oh, good question. There, there's, there's several types. The, I think the, the sexiest type are the structural refactorings, things like, you know, renaming columns and tables or moving a column from one table to another or, you know, splitting a column in two. Um, so those are, you know, those are the things that we think of being reasonably dangerous because we can imagine that, you know, you know renaming a column is going to break 100 apps. So yeah. um, we need to be careful about that. But then there's also, you know, you know, basic code refactoring. So, for example, in databases, you're going to have a lot of stored procedures more than likely. Well, 
you know, any normal code refactoring that, you know, Martin Fowler talks about in the refactoring book is applicable to, you know, almost all of them at least are applicable to stored procedures as well. So we, you know, we, we review that a bit, but, you know, basically we point to Martin's book and we say, hey, you know, you, you really need to look at this. Um, there's also architectural refactoring. So uh, maybe you want to encapsulate access to your database using stored procedures. Maybe you don't. Maybe you want to move some functionality out of the application into the database or vice versa. Hmm. So there's, there's good reasons for doing that. So we, we discuss how to do those sorts of things. We also discuss data quality refactoring because, you know, as we know, there, there's a, you know, a fair bit of problem with the, with the existing data in these databases, and it's not going to clean itself up. So somebody's going to have to come along and do this work and do it in such a manner that we don't break the applications that are accessing the database. Hmm. I could see a goal being I want to be able to apply a not null to this column but before I do that, I've got to clean up all the nulls. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's, it's interesting, like e- even something as simple as, what, you know, what should be simple, uh, such as uh, putting a default value on a column can be devastating to an application. So you need to be really smart about that. So, for example, if I put a default value of 17 into a column, well, I've got to make sure that every single application that accesses that column knows how to process pr- properly the value of 17. So, and that might not, not actually be the case. So these, these are the sorts of things we talk about in the book. I guess a lot of that is, you know, keeping good records of where these applications are and, and who owns them. And, you know, there's probably a lot of meta practices that go along outside the, the technical stuff, you know. Yeah, there's definitely that. Um, one, of, one of the things we do talk about in the book is we run into the assumption that you don't know where everything is because, yeah. you know, call it like it is, some, you know, some consulting company could have come in, built an app, didn't tell anybody, and but it's still accessing your database. Right, it's tucked away in a directory somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. So you're. Gonna, yeah. So one of the things we talk about is every so often you're going to blow somebody out of the water, and that's just the way it is. Um, you know, you should react accordingly, um, do the right thing, fix things, and then move on. But um, you're going to take a hit every so often, and that's just part of the part of the overall game. Hmm. I'm curious as to you your approach to dealing with that hit. Is the correct answer roll back and reassess, or is it, it forge on? It might on? be. Um, yeah. So you, you need to have your your act together on uh, the way you deploy your changes into production. We, t- we go into that in great detail. But the you know sometimes it might just be looking straight in the eye and said, "Well, you know what? You guys were fooling around. You you know you should have you should have been working with the IT department." Who gave you authority to to go off and build that app and not right. you know not not let the data folks know about this? You know, sorry, you know, you know we'll, we'll help you fix it, but you know, really, you know, you're taking a hit now, and that's just the way it is. You know, please don't do that again. Spoken like a true DB admin. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and and you know, and that's when vice presidents start screaming at each other, and you know, it's a lot of fun for the you know the techies to watch. Those are the <laughs> best meetings, aren't they? Oh, oh yeah. when the business guys get heated, you bet. <laughs> That's so much fun. And the admins are screaming at the developers, and the developers are going, what? What? <laughs> you said you wanted this feature. This is what it takes. Exactly. You know, when I when I was working as an IT guy, I used to just remove reports from the system every so often to see if somebody would complain. Yeah. <laughs> just to find nice. out if stuff's being used, you know? I, I actually, I've got you beat. Uh, years ago, I worked at a bank. And I removed an entire database to see who would scream. Oh. Yeah, because we, we couldn't, we had no idea, you know, it was costing us a lot of money, and we had no idea who was accessing it because we didn't have any tools at the time to, you know, to uh, monitor it. And so I said, okay, you know, I asked around, couldn't find anybody that knew a thing about it, and said, okay, fine. Yeah, I 
let's just you know let's take it down and see what, and see who screams and it took a few months but now finally somebody complained and we discovered that it was being used for one set of reports once a quarter um, so we didn't need to be running that database constantly yeah once a quarter yeah, so it could take up to three months before it showed up. Well, you know, exactly. I, I had a picture of you sitting by the, you know, with a, you, one finger on the speakerphone button and the other finger, you know, about to rename the database back to what it was, you know, <laughs> about to hit the undo button. Just, you know, oh, yep, sorry. No, no, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, no, yeah. It works for me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I've, done, I've done stuff like that, too. Might not be good, but hey, no, no, well. you get in trouble. <laughs> but, you know, the key of all this is a good reversion strategy. Don't do anything you can't undo. Yeah. Exactly. So having a good test environment, you know, key to that. Yeah. Uh, what about architectural refactorings? Yeah, well, the, the architectural refactorings are, are a little tougher, right? So if you make a, a serious decision, you know, if you decide to uh, rework something that, you know, that's a, a major architectural issue, it can be pretty serious. Yeah. Um, one of the things we talk about in Agile modeling is that you actually want to do a little bit of modeling up front. So this is a message that doesn't get out of the, the Agile community very well, I think, where, you know, because the, the rhetoric is always, well, you know, the, the design will emerge over time and you don't need to do any thinking whatsoever. Well, okay, and that, that might not be fair. You know, that might, might not be a fair characterization. A little but, too extreme. You know, yeah, but, yeah, there's there's definitely some extreme thinking going on. Well, the reality is, is, you know, the vast majority of Agilists, you know, at the beginning of a project, they get in a room and they, you know, get, get in front of a whiteboard and they start sketching things and they, they think the big issues through. And what will happen when you do that, you know, you're not always going to get it right, but you're going to get a lot of it right. And, you know, you, you know just a, a couple hours of thinking at the beginning of a project can avoid some major hassles down the road. Well, you brought up Agile modeling. Let's uh, spend some cycles on that. Okay. Yeah. So um, let's start with just a, a definition, and then we'll go from there. Okay. So well, what Agile modeling is, it's a, it's a lightweight um, collection of values, principles, and practices for doing effective modeling and documentation on, on a software development project. So the basic idea is that you want, to be, you want to be smart about the way you model. You want to be as lightweight as possible. Um, you know, the concept of just-in-time modeling is critical, something we call model storming. And you, see, you want to do a little bit of modeling up front because you know, you've you got to do some, some sort of requirements modeling because somebody's going to ask you, what are you going to build and how much, how much do you think it's going to cost and how long do you think it's going to take? And you're going to have to do a little bit of architecture modeling up front too, right? Because you, know, you, you, you need to know what you're going to build. And, but that doesn't mean you spend weeks or months writing you know, a bunch of useless documentation. This could be a few minutes, could be a few hours or a few days of just getting your act together at the beginning. So then once that happens, um, as you work throughout the project, what you'll find is that, you know, you'll pull a requirement off the top of, your, top of the stack, and you need to, you know, you, you know it says, oh, I'll build a screen to, you know, do order entry. Well, that's not a lot of detail, so you have to do some analysis. And, you know, you need, you, so you need to talk to a stakeholder or a couple stakeholders, and it might take you 10 or 15 minutes, but up at the whiteboard, you start drawing what that screen's going to look like and what the fields are and where they're going to be, and, you're not going to get it perfectly right, but you're going to get it close enough. So you'll do what modeling is good at, which is think through the big issues. Yeah. And then you'll go back to your, you know, and once you've done that, you then you go back to your desk and you might spend several hours or several days building that screen. Now, if you choose to use a modeling tool to get into the details or if you happen to just be, you know, or some, you know, an IDE or, you know, if you're just using Emacs and banging out code, you know, that's, that's your business. But, um, so you'll use the tools at your desk to get the job done. So, and these are the sorts of things we talk about in agile modeling. 
You know, the, I, I love the, the stuff that's on your website about enterprise modeling anti-patterns. Oh, There's yeah. Some, some really nice stuff to, uh, you know, do's and don'ts here. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah there, there's a lot of stuff. It's it's interesting. Like if if you look at what goes goes on in the enterprise world, um, there's a lot of there's a, a huge failure rate, and it's unfortunate that we don't really have any stats on it. But yeah. that feel tells me like eighty or ninety percent of all enterprise architecture efforts fail. That number gets bigger every time we talk about it on the show. <laughs> yeah, it's it's it, you never quite know. Thing, and we don't have solid numbers. Nobody looks into these issues. Yeah, and um, we, although actually I, I'm I'm going to soon for for Doctor Dobbs, but um, because I want these numbers because I, I think the you know I think it's pretty rough out there. And a lot of a lot of the reasons why these enterprise architecture efforts fail is because they're often bureaucratic. They're often ivory tower. Um, you know, it's often like very smart people who are desperately trying to do a good job, and they often do a good job. But then, for whatever reasons, they get ignored by the development teams. And so, what we talk about in uh, in the agile modeling and agile data world is how these enterprise um, architecture efforts and enterprise administration efforts can actually be agile and can actually provide value to the agile teams. It is possible, and uh, I would argue that the, an agile approach to, to enterprise architecture is highly desirable and more than likely has a much higher success rate than traditional approaches. Yeah. We've been talking a lot about Agile methodology on uh, .NET Rocks lately. And, you know, every once in a while I hear a phrase that sort of sticks with me. And one that I hear is that, you know, because software is so dynamic and sometimes it requires more people and sometimes it requires less, that, you know, a lot of companies will overstaff and for a big project push and then there's a bunch of developers sitting around not doing anything. And rather than just, you know, uh, give them a paycheck and tell them to go learn something or something. You know, the, we stick them in other projects where they're just mucking around and yeah. muddying up and in, in getting in trouble. And so it might actually be beneficial to a company to just, you know, here, go go back to school, go learn something. You know, here's some training money. Go take a class, you know, go learn something new and bring it back and and educate us a little bit. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think that, um, Tom DeMarco a few years ago wrote a wonderful book called Slack, where he talks about um, you know stuff like this and having to put some slack time in your schedules because you know strange things happen and you need to give people a rest and a time to you know rev up the batteries again and stuff like that. So um, you want to be smart about that. And, and it's it's strange that you know management will often think, well, you know that person's not doing you know not building something right now, therefore they're not adding any value. Well. If they're building something that's getting in somebody else's way or offers no value whatsoever, then you know, there's, there's, you know that, that's just not a good idea. Yeah, yeah, they're doing the opposite of providing value; they're reducing value. Right. Exactly. Um, I, I've been I've been in a lot, and it's strange. Like you know, people talk about these huge teams and how, how they desperately need to do it, but I've been on some of these huge teams, and when you start you know looking around and, and you ask the question, so who's actually doing something of concrete value that's that on this project? It's a very small minority of the people. You know, there's a lot of paper being pushed. There's a, a lot of extra stuff being done that will never see the light of day. Um, you know, there's projects within projects. You know, maybe somebody's trying to, you know, get the get the organization up to CMM level three or something, and they're doing it under the scope of this existing big huge project. So uh, there's a lot of weird stuff going on, and I think there's a lot of questionable um, questionable practices happening as a result. Hmm. And so, I mean, the point being here that. The idea of sending people off to training or giving them good slack time 
is actually a constructive use of that space and an acceptance that this stuff always exists. There's always overhead inside of a development team. You might as well acknowledge it and use it effectively. Well, I mean, yeah, to me, being agile means uh, just that, reacting to what the needs are of the business and and, and being appropriate with the response. Um, and, and it's not always just to to stick 15 people in a process where they don't need to be. It just makes everything go slow. Exactly. Yeah. You know, .NET Rocks would not even be possible today if it weren't for the great support of our first sponsor, Data Dynamics. And their product is the one that we really love, Active Reports for .NET. It's easy to use. It's powerful. You just create the reports. You put them right in your assemblies, and you ship them with your code. They have uh, HTML and PDF support. They've got an excellent access upsizing wizard so that you can get your access reports into Active Reports for .NET. Uh, works for Windows Forms, works with ASP.NET. It's easy, and it just works. And best of all, it won't break the bank. And that's what we love about Data Dynamics. Data Dynamics has got a lot of other great tools, too. And you should check them out. Please check them out at datadynamics.com. You've obviously had a lot of practice in, in Agile. We've talked about the data side of Agile, but you also spent some time on the CMM side as well. I, it's almost like you've got your feet in both camps. Yeah, I did. Years ago, I, I worked at, a, at an object consulting company, and this was in, the, I guess, the mid-'90s, and um, I eventually worked my way up to, to be the process engineer. Perhaps I worked my way down to be the process engineer. I don't know. <laughs> they wouldn't let you do any real work anymore? You got to be the process engineer? <laughs> exactly, yeah. And uh, so, so we started, and CMM was sort of at its height at the time, so we, we really bought into that, and it seemed to work. Um, you know, there's some good, you know, it's like everything, there's some good stuff and some bad stuff. And then after that, I uh, worked on some military projects for a while, which was just heavily CMM, and um, so, so it was interesting. So my positive CMM experiences um, ended up getting captured in my two books, Process Patterns and More Process Patterns, and, which was originally one book, but it got split into two by the publisher, which I didn't agree with. But, you know, not that I'm bitter. And <laughs> uh, so what happened was, Love and then, then I saw the bad side of CMM, you know, on this, on this military project. So it, it was sort of interesting. So I think that the point is that there are well, a couple points. I guess first, there is some value in the CMM stuff, and the, the Agile community likes to you know beat up on the, the CMM things a, a bit, but there really is some good ideas there that we should take advantage of. Um, but at the same time, there, you know, often many of the CMM implementations are, are questionable at best, and um, we need to recognize that. So it, it is definitely possible to succeed with CMM, but um, it's often a rough go. So I think we and and we need to recognize that you know different situations require different types of processes. The and the the other thing I think which is important is that I think it puts me in a position to be reasonably objective about what you know what the value is of the agile stuff and the CMM stuff and the, you know and you know everything else in between. And uh, we don't see that with a lot of the you know a lot of a lot of people either they'll be in one camp or the other and maybe know a little bit about the other stuff, but not really, uh, you know, not really have a wide range of experience. I, I Only think know enough to know that the other side is bad? 
Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, they you know they, they'll know you know the CMM folks will know a little bit about agile, but not a lot, and vice versa. And as a result, it's very hard to to find people that can speak coherently about both and then compare and contrast and and give you advice of when to do each one. So. Um, I would I would invite people to do a little bit more reading and you know, try to get a w- wider experience. Now, you I mean one of the points you made here is that CMM makes sense in some cases. Would you care to define those cases? Yeah, well, I think the um, there's a few things. So, so for example, uh, an easy answer is you know if you're if you're working for a services firm and your client insists on doing CMM, well, okay, that makes a lot of sense. So, you know, because, you know, if you don't, you don't get the contract. <laughs> right. Which, which actually might be good. So you never know. You know, losing a contract is often the best thing that could ever possibly happen to you. But I, I think the the value of CMM, if you, if you step back and look at it, is that it really does provide the requirements for a software process. Now, you know, are the, are the requirements perfect? No. There's, you know, you can, you know, you can pick apart some of the process areas and, some of the you know some of the aspects of those and, and and really sort of question them, but for the most part, I got to think like ninety percent of the material in CMM is pretty solid. Now, how you choose to implement the process based on those requirements is up to you, and I think that's where a lot of people have a tendency to fall down. But um, it is possible to be quite effective with it. But you, you want to be lightweight. You want to you know it. Real, the best process improvement that I've seen comes from the grassroots, comes from the people doing the work, and they and now they might not always be able to see the bigger picture, so you got to you know, sort of tease things out of them. But at the same time, that you want to be realistic and you want to have a process that reflects the way you actually work, and uh, and that the way you should work. So, and I think that often gets missed in the CMO community, where you get these professional process engineers, and they define you know the fantasy method that people should be following. Um, you know, if everything worked out in their perfect little fantasy world. And it doesn't often doesn't work that way. And then the process gets ignored, and um, you start faking it, and things like that. And it just gets you know spirals out of control from there. There's no better way to undermine a process than to not have buy-in from the people who are supposed to do it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's interesting. Like a lot of in a lot of situations, you'll see people who are just faking the process. You know, they're, they're, they'll fill out the forms um, not because it's a good idea, but because you know they have to for the process, and they, they pretend to care. And they'll hold the reviews just just so they can get the little checkbox on the uh, on some paperwork somewhere, and none of that is adding value other than you know employing bureaucrats. And I think you you want to be really smart about it. I remember reviewing a set of documentation that was under the CMM process, and the comment I made is, "This looks like a seven year old wearing his dad's suit." <laughs> <laughs> you know, they had all the right headings. Yeah. But none of the content. You know, you got to actually put paragraphs under these headings with some actual information. Yeah. Hey, if you don't mind, we can uh, shift the conversation a little bit to the yeah. to the tools that you use and that you like. Let me ask you: um, Are are you when you're talking about modeling? Are you particularly talking about UML two O, or are there any other more uh, expressive tools that can actually? You know, are you a big fan of tools that will actually generate code or data, ORM kind of modeling tools, or are you strictly, you know, let's make a document that we can refer to? Oh no, I'm a. I, I fully believe in using the, the right tool for the job. So one of the things that I look for in a in a software based modeling tool is whether or not it generate not only generates code but regenerates the code as well. 
Um, so is it, you know, an active part of your development environment or is it the entire development environment? So, um, so for example, um, you know, Erwin from uh, Computer Associates is a wonderful data modeling tool, um, at least, you know, for traditional projects because what happens is it allows you to, to do your data modeling, generate the database schema, it can reverse generate the schema, all that good sort of stuff. Um, RDA from IBM, you know, Rational Data Architect from IBM does those sorts of things too. So, yeah. Um, one of those things, and, and there's many other tools that do that. So, um, but if it, if it just generated documentation or pretty pictures, then it's not that great of a modeling tool. Like, you know, um, it's good if I need to do a management presentation or write an article, but if I need to actually build working software, it's not really adding any value to me um, other than to, to generate documentation, which, you know, might add, add value if that's something the client wants. But, um, and then you see, like, other coding, coding-based tools um, you know, together CC from Borland is a is is a good example where it does um, you know both generation and reverse generation. Um, um, other tools yeah. do that as well. So, uh, oh, well, for example, well, Microsoft is starting to build uh, modeling um, features into Visual Studio, um, sure. which is a good thing. Um, IBM's got got you know RSA and good stuff like that too. So, um, there's a lot of tools out there, but. The, so and and they they seem to do the job now. Everybody does it, you know, does it in a slightly different way. So you know, together CC will do its version of UML. IBM will do its version of UML. Microsoft will you know do domain specific languages because it doesn't want to do UML for some reason, um, and that's perfectly fine, right? Because at the end of the day, it's bubbles and lines. So you know, if you're using rounded rectangles and I'm using square rectangles, who really cares? Um, the important thing is that <laughs> the teams understand, oh, those rectangles mean this, right. and, you know, I press the button and it generates the code, and I can work yeah. on the code and press the button again, and it brings it back up into the model and does the right thing. Um, right. That's what, what you're looking for. Um, and some tools do that, some tools don't. Are you still a big fan of the whiteboard? Yeah, um, definitely. I, the vast majority of modeling occurs on whiteboards and, uh, or on paper. Yeah, yeah, it's equally as, uh, yeah. as good of a tool. And it's interesting that we don't recognize that. I think the, the IT industry suffers from its inability to, to actually admit to what it does in practice. Mm. And, it, you know, it's funny. Like I, at Oopsla a couple of years ago, I was on a panel, and I asked the audience, you know, whenever I'm on a panel, I always like to ask, ask the audience questions because then you get actually real decent answers and not the, you know, the consultant panelist answers. And so I asked the audience, so who, who models? And about half the people stuck up their hand. So about 10 minutes later, I then asked the question, so who, who does um, sketches on whiteboards when they're developing software? And 95% of the people stuck up their hand. And yeah. I said, well, wait a minute, that's modeling. Um, and they don't, but we don't recognize that. And I think that's a serious problem. Um, you know, so we need, and so there's nothing wrong with it, you know, doing, you know, and frankly, a lot of right things about doing some thinking at the whiteboard and getting the big picture and then going back and getting to the point where, yeah, that looks like it's going to work. And then going back to your desk and using your tools to, to use the, you know, to develop the software. And if you happen to use modeling tools, that's great. If you happen to use an IDE, that's great. Now, I know you're not a fan of the term best practice. Um, I read that uh, what you said about you, you like the term contextual practice makes uh, more sense. Yeah. Because best um, implies best worst. Best practice is a wonderful marketing term, but it's not, it's not accurate. Uh, and, and unfortunately, we're never going to get this out of the lexicon for as, as uh, long as I can, yeah. I can see. But um, the, the basic idea is that a, a practice is best in certain situations. So, for example, a lot of people consider reviews to be a best practice. 
Well, on a traditional team, yes, I would agree. That's definitely best practice. On an agile team, the value of a review starts to starts to dwindle really quickly because we're so highly collaborative, because we're pair programming, because we're modeling with others, um, because we have shared code ownership and stuff like that. So, you know, waiting to do a review in a couple of weeks really doesn't give us any any additional benefit where we already have you know a second set of eyes on something whenever we build it. So, those sorts of things, um, you know, so that sort of a concept is difficult sometimes for people to understand when they have, you know, so if a tradition, you know, if, you, if I tell a traditionalist that a, a review is, uh, you know, a bad practice for agile stuff, you know, they'll have a heart attack. Right. Whereas, you know, it's, you know, an agilist go, yeah, yeah, you're sort of right. Nor they go, reviews, why the heck would I waste, waste my time with a review? So it's, um, it, it's a different world. So I think we need to, to un, you know, step back and understand that. And, the one of the challenges that I see is that there is all this older research which has this underlying assumption that you work in a serial traditional manner which shows that these practices in fact add value and they do in that situation but the papers often don't specify oh and by the way there's this underlying assumption that we're in a traditional world so what happens when you mm-hmm. remove that assumption of being in a traditional world maybe that practice is no longer a good idea, and sure. we don't have any numbers on a lot of this sort of stuff. So I think there's a, um, there's a, wonderful, you know, a wonderful opportunity for the researchers out there to basically redo all the work of the last 20 or 30 years and really start going through the, you know, what we hold to be true and start asking the questions, is this really true? What were the assumptions? And I think we'll, we'll start seeing that, you know, a lot of these things uh, are best practices only in a certain context. And it's funny, whenever you see anybody who's really serious about writing best practices, they always set the context because it's absolutely necessary. Yeah. You know, they, they, it doesn't make any sense without its context. It's just, you know, and by best the, practice is a lousy term. By the same token, you're always getting, I'm you know, in my classes, I'm always getting people saying, you know, uh, what's the best practice? And they don't like it. The answer, it depends. Yeah. You know, they want, people want black and white. Yeah. And, and, and the world just doesn't work that way. And I, I think, you know, maybe it's a, a, a problem with technical people because we're used to dealing with bits and bytes. I but think you're right. It's, it's really, it's, um, this is actually one of the things we talk about in the Agile Data Method. Um, one of the one of the philosophies is sweet spot, and we we specifically say that it's not you know you don't want to go for the extremes. That instead you want to go for somewhere in between the the extremes, and you know find the sweet spot for your situation. And unfortunately, that requires skill and experience. That is such a beautiful metaphor. I love that oh, sweet spot. You. No, that's excellent. Well, and and the tendency always is to go to the edges, isn't it? You know? Yeah, and 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 that's where a lot of the conversations end up end up being right. It's like. You know, it's this or that. It's funny. If you take a look at what happens on mailing lists, there's always these conversations of X versus Y. Right. And, and the thing is, well, you know, maybe we should be looking for somewhere in between those things. And, 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 and the conversation always ends up that we need to do a little bit of X and a little bit of Y in, you know, in these situations. Yep. Yet, meanwhile, but we can't learn from this, this, this experience of it's not an X versus Y issue. Um, and, you know... You know, a day later, the same people will be involved with A, B, A versus B. Um, it's, it's just crazy. Yeah, I think pursuing absolutes always gets you into trouble. I agree. Yeah, yeah people are looking for that golden list of rules. Always do this, you know, the Ten Commandments of Software Development. 
We're looking at um, your page, your essay, uh, Agile Requirements, Best Practices, and there's some great stuff here. I was particularly drawn to number five, which is your goal is to effectively implement requirements, not document them. <laughs> I really yeah, love that. <laughs> it, it's, this, this is something, this actually goes to the, the prejudices, I think, in the, in the traditional community. I, I constantly run into people who just insist on having to, on having to write requirement specifications. Now, whether they do it up front or not is a different story, but um, you know, they, they, they fully believe that, you know, you can't build something until, until it's been specified on paper. And, yeah, I look at that, and then I ask them, so, if you, you know, what happens when you've got that requirement specification? Do, do people actually implement it? And they just, oh, yeah, sure, it happens all the time. And, and then, you know, I'll ask the question, well, really? And, you know, it takes them a couple of minutes, but they, they, then they start telling you, oh, yeah, those stupid developers, you hand them a requirement spec, and they go off and do something else, and they might not even be reading it, for all I know. Yeah, no kidding, they're not reading it. Um, yeah, so it's you know you, what you really want to do is build software that meets the, the changing needs of your stakeholders, not develop something to a specification. And that unfortunately requires the skills of you know going off and talking to your stakeholders and working with them and, and showing them things and being being willing you know being willing to be told that ooh this isn't exactly what I asked for, even yeah. though it could be exactly what they asked for. But now they've changed their minds and you just have to sit there and get blamed for that and and go on. So, well, uh, stuff changes. You know, the reality is, even if you did exactly what they asked for, did the software right, that modifies the way the business works, and now they need something else. Exactly. Yeah, you, you, you've solved you've solved one problem, and suddenly you know another uh, uh, you know a new problem has just you know risen its ugly head, and now we got to deal with that. A lot of this, uh, the reason why people developers love requirements, I think is because they don't want the, you know, it's like a feelings thing. It's like you don't want to feel bad and get blamed for not doing something or if something was assumed and you didn't do it, you know, then they come back and yell at you. And it's like, yeah, I think it's, it's like kind of like a, on an emotional plane uh, to some extent, don't you? Yeah, there's that going on, but I think a lot of it's just, you know, CYA, you know, CYA. They, they just want to make sure, they want to be able to say, well, you know, Here's the specification. I did exactly that. It's not my fault, and that that's not good. You know, you know. So sure, you've built it to the spec, but you know, if your stakeholders aren't happy, they're going to remember that the next time they work with you, and or more than likely they'll, they'll remember it and not work with you next time. Yeah. And you know, you know, find somebody else to do that work. So. So it's a bit of job uh, security. I think we're playing a dangerous game here. Yeah, and in the end, you know, if you don't have the intent to build good, successful software, do it right. You're gonna fail eventually. Exactly. There was a, I can't I can't remember where it was, but there was a study a while ago, and they asked the, they basically asked the question: So, what are the most hated professions in the world? Mm. And you know, number one was politician, number two was lawyers, number three was IT professionals. <laughs> so, you know, we're more hated than used car salesmen right now. So, I think that's or insurance salesmen. So, this is bad news, and we're just barely doing better than the lawyers. So. Oh, you know, we we need to really you know pull up our socks here because you know this is not good, and you know people have people have an opportunity to go elsewhere and they will. Yeah, we are in the service business after all. Exactly. You know, we're not doing the work that makes the money. We're supporting the people that do the work. Yeah, definitely. And, I, and it's interesting. I, I run into developers all the time, and you know they they want to play with the new technologies and and they they want to stay focused on the high highly technical things and. That's great, but at the same time, 
they need to get good at some of the softer things as well. So one of the concepts I talk about is that effective developers are generalizing specialists. And what that means is they, they have one or more specialties because you you, you got to have some value to offer to the team. But they also have a general knowledge of software development and better yet, a general knowledge of the business domain in which they're working. So that way that enables them to interact with other people that have other specialties um, effectively. And, and you, you idea, go to this in your in your practices list number 10 adopting stakeholder terminology yeah i think um, you know i was always very successful as a consultant because by lunchtime on monday i spoke my customer's language you know, learn that glossary and embrace it yeah um it, it's important you, you need to understand what the domain is i used to also you know when i would go into a new company if I could, I'd go and find a couple books on the weekend at the local bookstore, you know, describing logistics or marketing or, you know, whatever environment that was going to be in, and just to read them to understand the basics. I definitely wasn't an expert at it, but I sort of had a clue, and I could actually start asking asking better questions and, and get up to speed really quickly. But a lot of people don't want to do that for some reason, and I think that's problematic. Well, and it gets back to that basic mindset of we're the we are the customer service people. We have to learn their language, not the other way around. Exactly. You know, programmers don't have jobs if businesses don't value us, but the businesses still have jobs. Yeah, and and, and I think one of the things too that you know, we need to understand is that to the user, the the user interface is the system, not all the stuff in behind it. And right. if we don't have you know at least decent user interface development skills. We're in serious trouble because nobody cares how good that Java code or how good that C sharp code is if the user interface looks like crap. Is that where you usually start when you're designing? Uh, yeah, well, well, that's that's what people are usually talking about. Usually, what'll happen? Your stakeholders will talk about one of two things. They'll they'll talk about you know what the screen what the screens and reports should look like, or they'll talk about what the uh, what the process what the business process is what the business problem is that they're trying to solve. Um, but usually, you know, I, I can t- you know, as soon as you start talking about screens, that's what they get focused on because that's what they understand. And and until you start talking about screens and until you start um, giving them a vision of what of what it's going to look like, they are not going to be happy, um, you know, walking out of that room. Mm. That also speaks to who you should have in that room. The guy who cares about the screen is an important person in the process. Definitely. Not everybody does care about it. If you're not the person doing the entry, you don't care about the screen. You know? Yeah, yeah. But at some point, you know, you're still going to, you know, any anybody using the system is going to, you know, they're going to see a screen or a report or something, right? Yeah. So, the, I, that that was a, a, my next point was, there, I was always good about get at least one report guy in there. He was usually the guy who signed my check anyway. Yeah. So what is it you want to see on the report? Because that told me a lot about what information he actually cared about. Exactly. Hey, uh, Scott, let's talk a little bit about the Eclipse Process Framework Project. Okay. Tell us what it is and and uh, how it fits in with all this. Yeah, it's really it's sort of a cool effort. Um, it, it, it's the, so I guess the good thing is that it's it's in Eclipse and it's open source. The, the bad thing, um, you know, for the Microsoft community is they'll say, hey, you know, it's in Eclipse, therefore it's not for me. But you know, the reality is is that there, there's two aspects to the project. Um, there's the tooling aspect. Um, um, called EPF Composer, and basically what that is is an editing tool for defining processes. So very few people are actually, you know, the process engineers or process authors are going to use that, um, but most people won't. The the second aspect 
um, which is my, what my focus is on, is actual actual process material. So, so for example, one of the things that's happened is IBM donated a portion of the rationally unified process, and we've put it out to open source, and um, in the in the form of what's something called Open Up Basic. And what that is, that's a very um, slim um, definition of the unified process for small teams um, that are co-located building business applications. So um, same same sort of idea as, uh, as MSF for Agile, actually. So the basic idea is that in Open Up Basic, you've got a defined process. Um, it, you know, it, right now, it generates out to a collection of HTML pages. In the new year, we're going to have it generating out to a wiki. So, hmm. um, which I think is going to be fairly interesting. Yeah. So the thing is, is that so now there's all this wonderful open source material out there, which you can tailor um, tailor to meet your own needs. We're also see, starting to see people. Um, so there's the Open Up Basic, which is available right now. Um, we're in the next week or two. Well, actually, by the time this hits the web, we're going to see a definition of extreme programming, um, which you can download for free um, hmm. and you know work on it if you want. Um, we're also going to see some. Um, plugins. So, for example, I'm currently working on an Agile database plugin, which is going to describe database regression testing, database refactoring, and Agile data modeling. Um, we're also going to start working on an Agile modeling plugin as well. So, the idea is that there's going to be all these various plugins, so that you can then um, put into your process to define you know, to tailor a process that meets your exact needs. So, I think that that's going to be fairly interesting. So, um, this I think is going to be the, the first example where we see um, process material that's uh, under the open source license. So anybody can download it, anybody can work on it, anybody can make contributions to it. So as a community, we'll be able to define a software process, and we're not going to have to just you know rely on the gurus among us. That's fascinating stuff. I'm, I, I'm like you. I grab onto that wiki thought thinking, dumping to a wiki like that, I guess as long as you follow the editing rules when you do an update, you're just going to have records of all of the changes as they went along. But I'm, I'm fascinated to see what the annotations are going to look like from the other contributors. Well, yeah, and that, that's it exactly. So when um, yeah, so one of the ideas is that um, we think that orga- what will happen in organizations is that they'll have you know their process group will maintain the process material, you know, the official process material. They'll generate out to these wikis. Then the, the project teams, as they work along, they will update um, their version of the wiki. You know, putting in best practices. You know, cutting things out, putting links to you know other people's material and stuff like that. And then at the end of the project, you know, somehow you know take you know t- you know review what what happened and you know you know find out the be- what the real best practices are and tailor the organization's process to to reflect what's actually going on in the project. So um, I think it'll be interesting. Hey, Scott, tell us about your article, The Politics Discipline. Oh, yeah, that was uh, every every year for Dr. Dobbs, well, for software development, now for Dr. Dobbs, uh, my April column is always an April Fool's joke. So uh, I guess three or four years ago, uh, my April Fool's joke was a a, a politics, uh, adding a politics discipline to the RUP. And it was uh, unfortunately the, the the official diagram didn't uh, make it to print, but it was the, the discipline was a black bar going across the middle of the process, and so I thought that was sort of clever. <laughs> we, we ran out of space, which is unfortunate. So the idea was that it you know it basically added political skills into the overall process. So maybe we should turn you know, maybe I should dig that up and turn it into a into a, a plug-in for 
open up. I don't know. I love the the design, you know, the UML that you have here. You have a process for control information, increase bureaucracy, purposefully mismanage. <laughs> oh, yeah. Support yeah. old boys network. I love yeah. that. Politician goes in to promote political, political allies. And then yeah, they protect guilty cool managers. Uh, so it's, 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 you know, if you do a search on it, you can you can find it pretty easily. Oh, we'll link to that for sure. Oh, okay, cool. <laughs> yeah. So it, it, well, it's funny though. You know, we, so we laugh about politics, and but the fact is, is that all organizations suffer from this, and and and, and benefit from from politics as well. Um, so there there is an argument for you know for you know so instead of like a, a tongue in cheek politics discipline that that I wrote up that you know maybe we should consider you know you know training people in politics and actually many people you know, many organizations do um, because you want to get good at, at uh, you know at least be able to fend for yourself in the yeah. political arena because you know the politicians are out there and you know if you're at least not aware of it you can easily get backstabbed and you know. You know, be surprised when you when you have like several knives sticking out sticking out your back. So, um, there, there's something to be said for it. Well, I really like the way that um, you really have a holistic approach to this. I mean, you cover data, as Richard said, development uh, methodologies, and also a lot of the just you know the the human aspect of this, which uh, which I think is great. I mean, it's quite a quite a broad spectrum of of tips and tricks and a lot of stuff that you have right there on the web. Oh, thanks. Yeah, no, basically what I do, you know, my approach is, is I think fairly straightforward. I, you know, when I'm on a project, I'm constantly asking the question, you know, what works, what doesn't work, why? And I think th- those are interesting questions to ask. And then, and, and when, and then when, you know, if I figure it out or sort of figure it out, uh, I'm a firm believer in sharing it. So uh, I'll put it on the web and, you know, hopefully add some value to the community. As a result, so Scott, how long ago did you join IBM? I joined in July of two thousand six. So it's it's only a recent thing. I mean, a lot of the work you've done in Agile and so forth was before IBM. Yeah, I'm definitely. kind of curious. What made you join? Um, I, I think I, I think there, there, there's a couple of reasons. First, you know, it's just a good company to work for. But I think the and you know we're doing a lot of interesting work. But um, what I'm seeing is the the agile uh, agile software development is definitely crossing the chasm. And this is something I saw in the 90s with object technology. And what happens when, you know, the, the rules on the right-hand side of the, of the chasm are, are definitely different than the rules on the left. And different organizations win on the right-hand side, I guess is the, the nice way to say it. Yeah, you know, we and, should probably, for our listeners, talk a little bit about, I mean, I'm a big advocate of crossing the chasm as a guy involved in developing products and so forth. But uh, a lot of other people aren't aware of this terminology. Maybe you want to talk a little oh, bit okay, about yeah. that. Um, yeah, so, so when we talk about crossing the chasm, um, this is a reference to a book um, by a fellow by the name of Jeffrey Moore. Um, and the book's title is called Crossing the Chasm. And basically it's, a, it's a, a technology marketing concept where the basic idea is that he splits it up. He splits the marketplace up into, I believe it's six different categories. And on the left-hand side are the innovators and early adopters. And so an, in, an innovator will look at will look at a new idea and say, "Yeah, that's pretty cool. Let's try it." And you know that's the entire marketing pitch to those people. Where and early adopters they'll look at it and go, "Yeah, you know, I think I can get some good ROI, you know, over that. Let's give it a shot." Yeah, the guys but who want to be out in front is and take get, that it, risk to be first. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. There's the significant benefit being first. Then what happens though is, and then so you see a lot of technologies and a lot of ideas. They get really popular 
for you know a year or two, and then suddenly they die out. And so the question is, well, why? And the answer is that they don't cross the chasm, because what ha- so there's this uh, adoption chasm where on the on the other on the right hand side of the chasm you have the the early majority and the the late majority and the the laggards and you know folks like that who are much more conservative who um, will wait to see you know so, you know some of them will wait to see that at least uh, you know a large number of people are already doing this. Um, you know, the laggards will wait until like there's three well-documented case studies of firms that look almost exactly like them, right. and only until that point will they will they make a decision to try anything new. So what happens is many technologies don't cross the chasm because they don't find a way to make themselves attractive to the people on the right hand side. And you know, so we saw this. You know, um, rapid application development is a perfect example of this. This was incredibly popular in the '80s, um, but and you know, people still talk about it, but they don't really do it anymore um, because it di- it didn't really make it across. Or right. um, power builder, um, you know, on a tooling side, um, wonderful product, but didn't really make it across the chasm. So and so this stuff, ha- or you know, Microsoft Bob, <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> well, you know, wonderful I idea. I didn't even make it out the really door. Um, yeah, I'm sure there's other reasons why, but anyways, um, yeah, so stuff happens. Right. I guess, you know, the point you're getting to is that IBM is very much a right side of the chasm company, and if they're into Agile, or they're getting interested, then this is the time. The product, is, the concept is crossing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. And, 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 the, and there's a few other organizations that are, that are also on the, that are also going to do well on the right-hand side. Uh, Microsoft, for example, is going to do well. I would imagine Accenture will, and um, folks like that. But... Um, it's interesting, and we and we saw this with object technology. So, you know, if you do a little bit of research and and look at the the people and companies who were very successful in the early '90s, most of them are no longer around. And right. um, and who won the object game? Well, it was IBM and Microsoft and Sun and and a few others. So, I think there, you know, the, I, I'm seeing that sort of thing happening again. So, um, so the question is, you know, uh, that I was asking myself is, if I still want to be effective um, in the in the community. Then I'm going to have to, you know, get involved with um, organizations that, you know, are going to hopefully succeed. So, and we'll, and we'll have to see how how things play out. And it's going to be another five or ten years before it's, um, you know, if it's obvious if I was right or wrong. But uh, I suspect that I'm right, having seen. I think you've taken before. an optimistic position. You know, yeah, like, this yeah, is the I, way I forward. So. so I'm going to go position myself in the way forward. Final question, Scott. Okay. If you had to pick one of your many books uh, that you think every .NET developer should read. Which would it be? Oh, um, that's a good question. I would, I would have to probably think refactoring databases, the, the newer one. Um, Agile database techniques is also pretty good on the data side of things, but um, refactoring databases is pretty solid. Now, the bad news for the uh, .NET community is that the source code is Java and PL SQL um, from Oracle. So, um, but it's <laughs> All right, let me ask the question stuff. again, Scott. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Yeah, so, uh, yeah. Well, if you had to choose another one, um, Object Primer might be good. It really should have been called the Agile Primer, but um, what can you do? But, yeah, I I think um, refactoring databases is probably your best bang for your buck. Excellent. Scott Ambler, thank you very much for joining us on .NET Rocks. Oh, thank you. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Uh, Pleasure talking to you guys. And uh, we'll talk to you, dear listener, next week on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks can be found online at www.dotnetrocks.com 
and at msdn.microsoft.com slash D-O-T-N-E-T-R-O-C-K-S. .NET Rocks is edited each week by Jeff Maciolik, that's me, and Carl Franklin, who is also executive producer. All music heard on .NET Rocks, including Toy Boy, the theme song, is created and produced by Carl Franklin and Franklin Brothers Band. Carl never sleeps. .NET Rocks is produced for Franklin's Net by Plop Productions, providing professional audio and podcasting services online at www.pwop.com. Plop, it's time to get your impact back. Yes, I'm a toy boy. Life is hard. Pay my taxes.